Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Sydney Michelini, a host on the podcast, or I'm a host on the New Books Network who is sort of moving between disciplines and enjoying the experience. Um, today, I'm talking with Dr. Jorgen Josenhagen, um, who is a senior researcher at Prio, a historian by training. And um, yeah, he's going to be talking about his new book on the Carter era in the Arab-Israeli conflicts. Um, he is primarily a scholar of that conflict, although he did his PhD in Norway at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in 2016. He has edited several books on Middle Eastern studies and um, has also taught at the University of Applied Sciences in Inland Norway. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so I guess let's just jump right into it. How about you give our audience a little background on how it is you came to write this book? And sort of why it is that you wanted to write this book. So you know, there's there's kind of two storylines here. The first is how on earth I became interested in Israel Palestine, and and basically, you know, my my mom is a diplomat, so I grew up um, kind of in the foreign service, and and we stayed for three years in Syria when I was small. Um, so you know, the the interest in the Middle East has always been there since uh, childhood, and then. When we returned to Norway after a couple of stints uh, abroad, that was just when the Oslo Peace Treaty was more or less signed. Um, so that was like, you know, this grand moment in my childhood where we thought, you know, Norway had brought peace to the Middle East. And then, you know, a couple of years later, lo and behold, we, we hadn't, it, uh, as it turned out. Um, and so I was always really curious from, you know, from a young age, you know, how the Middle East kind of works, how, how diplomacy works, why peace processes seem to succeed and then uh, in the end uh, fail. Um, and then there's sort of the academic uh, story, which is basically that my interest in this conflict has really been about the dynamic between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, and then, you know, when I did uh, my MA, I was working on, on uh, Jordan, Israel, uh, the British, uh, the UN, in the period around the 1948 war. And one of the things I discovered doing that is like, this conflict in its core is about the dynamics between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The, the territory they're uh, fighting over is, you know, the Palestine, basically, where the Zionists and the Palestinians both want uh, a state. And what was remarkable in 1948 was that the Palestinians were not considered a legitimate political party to uh, the, the diplomacy after the war. Um, and then, you know, I gradually discovered that the first time they're technically a party to, to diplomacy is with the Oslo Treaty, um, with the partial exception of, of Madrid in 91, where they're present as part of the Jordanian team, but not as, as an actor in their own right. And I was very curious about this. I was like, this, this doesn't make any sense, right? Why is the core conflict about the Palestinians and the Israelis? And then in diplomacy, the Palestinians are absent. You know, what, what kind of explains this? Uh, and then just by chance, I discovered one book referring to um, 
a, a famous Brookings Institution report um, that was kind of is seen as the inspiration for Carter's diplomacy. And there it said that this report wanted the Palestinians to be included as a party to the conflict. So I was like, huh, I, I need to look into this. Because what Carter is famous for is solving the Egyptian-Israeli conflict. Uh, and then, you know, this, this sentence about the Brookings report and Carter's interest of the Palestinians, it just keeps popping up here and there. But I discovered that nobody had really dis- studied what I call the Carter exception which is basically that Carter in 1977 decided to focus on the Palestinians, you know, and he failed, and, and we'll talk about that. But I was curious, you know, why has nobody really researched that? For Because for me, this is like a, a unique moment where unlike everything between 1948 and 1993 or 1991, depending on how you see it, this is like the one moment where the Palestinians are thought of as a legitimate party. Now, as I said, he failed, but I was I was really piqued by this moment, and I I really wanted to understand, you know, what was unique about it, and why it failed. Awesome, um, that's actually a really great background, particularly with like the personal connection to the Oslo Accords, which was something I was sort of like going to ask you behind the scenes about because sometimes people don't want to like give all their best diplomatic stories. On, on air, but that that's really great. Um, so before we get into Carter's moves and his failures and why he failed and what that might mean, could you give our audience just a little bit of background of sort of what the situation in what I think I'm supposed to call historic Palestine uh, looked like when Jimmy Carter was elected president of the United States? Um, so it just however you want to sort of outline the situation so that our audience, if they're not familiar with the situation, can can sort of see why it is that what Carter tries is is radical um, or is different and sort of what came before it so that they understand sort of what situation looks like. So, you know, from today's perspective, what we know as, as historic Palestine is basically Gaza, the West Bank and Israel. And in today's situation, the West Bank is just sort of, you know, really fractured up and divided between you know, various Palestinian enclaves and and large Israeli settlements and smaller Israeli settlements and, you know, the wall and all all of this uh, stuff. In in 1977, it looked quite different. Now, the territory also then was divided between Gaza, the West Bank and Israel, but a lot of things were very different. First of all, the, the, the settlements were very small in 1977. The wall wasn't there. There was much less of the type of security apparatus, uh, Israeli security apparatus we, we think of today. The Israeli occupation was there, uh, but it was much less sort of physically present. But in in terms of understanding like the, the context uh, of when Jimmy Carter comes to power, you know, we, we kind of have to skip back to 1948, 1967 and 1973, because these three wars basically defined not only what the map looked like, but what were the issues that were going to be discussed uh, and how to treat them. So in 1948, what Israelis know as as the War of Independence and the Palestinians know as uh, Al-Nakba, meaning the catastrophe, basically Israel ends up um, taking control over around 77% of the land. Um, They take over half of, uh, of Jerusalem, the western half, and 750,000 Palestinians flee. So this is sort of, you know, the birth of Israel and and also the birth of the Palestinian uh, refugee problem. Um, So for Palestinians, the the really core 
conflict issue arising from uh, 1948 is, first of all, the division of Jerusalem, because they want that as their capital, uh, and the refugee problem, and they, they want uh, return. So they get the right of return, um, but in all the years afterwards, they are basically a growing refugee population wanting to return to Palestine, but not getting the opportunity. Then if we jump 20 years ahead to 1967, this is when Israel occupies also the rest of Palestine, meaning Gaza, uh, West Bank, East Jerusalem. Now, unlike what Israel conquered or managed to acquire by, by uh, diplomatic means in, in 1948, the territories Israel takes in 1967 are um, not part of Israel. So one caveat here. So East Jerusalem becomes annexed by Israel uh, gradually, first sort of de facto and, and then then de jure later, um, actually later than the early Carter period. But East Jerusalem is kind of in this like weird situation because East Jerusalem is considered occupied by the entire rest of the world, but it's considered annexed gradually by Israel, meaning Israel considers East Jerusalem as part of Israel. The world considers East Jerusalem as, as occupied. Um, the West Bank and Gaza, on the other hand, are occupied. Israel considers them occupied. The world considers them occupied, meaning that they're not fully integrated into Israel. So the topics coming out of the 67 war is that the Palestinians want Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem back. Um, and from that, we get Resolution 242, which is basically the world community saying the, the recipe for peacemaking is land for peace, which is kind of still the framework we're working with uh, today, um, meaning that Israel should withdraw from territories occupied uh, and the Arab states should grant them recognition in return. So peace for, for the land they, they give back. Um, that's the second sort of important context. And the third is the 1973 war. Now, the 1973 war doesn't actually affect Palestine directly. It affects the Sinai and it affects the Golan Heights, meaning that it's an Egyptian and an Assyrian concern. So this is not really relevant for the Palestinians nor for Palestine as sort of a historical geographical area. But it is very significant because that is the trigger for the peace process between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Syria. And it's actually really the trigger for the U.S. as a, a major peace diplomat in, in, uh, in the region. Um, and this is kind of where Henry Kissinger comes in with his step-by-step uh, -step diplomacy, working for these various disengagement plans um, in the Sinai and on the Golan Heights, which is not about creating a full peace at all. It's about solving piecemeal issues, you know, a, a mile here, a mile there, um, some new demarcation lines, uh, some withdrawal of troops, some release of prisoners of war, you know, kind of more technical issues. Um, and it's really in opposition to this model of peacemaking that Carter is radical. Because Kissinger's approach is, <clears throat> it's based on the fact that, first of all, there's a realization from Kissinger that you cannot address the conflict in its entirety. You have to sort of chip away solvable issues and then move towards, you know, gradually towards the core. And that's the first premise. The other premise of Kissinger's diplomacy is that 
you want to, as much as possible, exclude the Soviet Union. This is a Cold War context, and, and the United States is really concerned about you know, not having the Soviet Union as present in the Middle East as possible. And the third pre uh, premise is to exclude the Palestinians, so to make it about bilateral relations between Israel and individual Arab states. Um, and th this is where Carter really, really ends up differing. Right. So the obvious follow-up question is sort of, why is it that Carter decided to, to take this different approach? Sort of, you talk about in the book how some people have seen this is because Carter is, even today, seen as sort of like a bleeding heart, right? He's just a really nice guy and taking care and sort of acknowledging these Palestinian refugees as sort of people with some sort of rights does seem like sort of, it kind of seems consistent with this idea of Jimmy Carter as just kind of like a good person who's focused on human rights. And is this why he does it? Um, or are there other reasons he does it? So like, what is it that inspires him to try something that Kissinger would not have tried? So there are kind of various opinions about this. Um, one is this is like, is this Christian uh, do-gooder who just, you know, wants to really make peace. Um, the other is that, you know, Jimmy Carter is a trained engineer. So he wants to like, he sees this as like a machine where he like makes all the cogs work together and he can like solve it uh, very logically kind of. Um, but then there is this third interpretation, which I'm really uh, struck by, which is that he analyzes it as a strategic thing. He sees that this step-by-step -step process, it really has reached its maximum level. There is nowhere to go uh, with, with more of this step-by-step. -step. He realizes a couple of things. And for, for me, this makes only sense if you see it as sort of strategic thinking. Uh, and, you know, another extra argument here is that Brzezinski, who, who's his national security advisor and definitely not a guy you would think of as sort of a, a bleeding heart. And uh, he completely agrees with Carter here. They have some small differences of about when to bring in the Soviet Union and all of that. But in terms of a strategic analysis, they're, they're in tune. And, and basically what I mean by this is that Carter says, you know, there is a core of this conflict, and that is the Palestinian issue. And unless we address the core, this is a conflict that's going to keep festering. It's just going to keep being present and just chipping away a mile here and a mile there. It's not going to solve it. Um, and we saw in 1973 that, you know, nuclear weapons were put on the alert. There was the, uh, the oil uh, embargo by the Arab states. Oil prices, you know, skyrocketed. Um, it had global ramifications, you know, economically, Cold War tensions and all of that. So Carter is really, you know, insisting that we have to avoid that. We cannot go back to a 1973 situation. And if the conflict is just there and not solved, then we can end up reverting to that. Um, so he basically analyzes it uh, thinking, you know, OK, so we have to address the core issue, meaning the Palestinian issue. And second of all, the only way to also address, say, Jordan is to include them in, in this uh, uh, larger package, what we call the comprehensive piece, because it's very, you know, Golan and, and, and Sinai are, are one thing because you can like give more land back to, to Egypt. But the West Bank is kind of a, a different thing because 
the people living there are Palestinians. And there is this uh, Jordanian interest in, in, in the West Bank because they've previously uh, annexed that area and then lost it in the 67 war. So they're kind of tied into that, but it's very difficult for them to, to ask to get that territory back because the Palestinians want it for themselves. So they have to be sort of integrated into a broader peace process. And another element is the Soviet Union. Whereas Kissinger tried to figure out a way to exclude the Soviet Union, Carter basically analyzed it saying that we kind of want the Soviet Union out of the conflict, but the way to do that is to include them in the peace. Um, because a peace which the Soviet Union supports is inherently a more stable peace than one they oppose. So we want to create a structure where the Soviet Union is sort of a co-guarantor of the peace rather than uh, an oppositional peace that we have to maneuver around. Um, so for me, all of this really only makes sense if you think about it strategically. Uh, including the Soviet Union, uh, you know, including all the Arabs together. It doesn't really make sense if you just think about it as like, oh, that's what a Christian would do, right? Uh, we see so many U.S. presidents who also are very uh, Christian in their world outlook who just thought about it differently. Okay. And can you give us a brief sort of, or not brief, just an explanation. This is, I think, the core of your book of why it is that this comprehensive peace approach failed. Yeah, so that's that's a that's a big question, and and kind of to analyze it, we have to look at all the different uh, groups or or countries or you know interests involved in this, because the comprehensive peace basically means that Syria, Israel, Jordan, the Palestinians, the West Bank, uh, no, so, sorry, the Soviet Union, Israel, the U.S and perhaps even Lebanon, all have to agree on a peace structure. <laughs> now, this is a huge task. It's just really, really difficult to make that happen. Um, Carter's premise is that peace can only work if we do manage that. So it's it's more difficult, but the, uh, the prize is so much higher, right? So if you do a separate separate step-by-step approach, it's easier, but what you're seeking to obtain is just, you know, it's so much less ambitious that it just might not be sufficient. But to break down how it fails, we have to look at all these different pieces. So in the US, um, the position, the starting position is that Carter has a lot of momentum with him here. Um, he has, you know, his whole foreign policy establishment working to support him. They're really willing to put in the hours. Carter himself is probably more engaged in this conflict than any president previously or after. Um, just the amount of time, the, the, the amount of work he puts into this is just amazing. Um, but then when we get to the other pieces, it's kind of more difficult. So in Egypt, Anwar Sadat is, I guess we could call him a stable pro-peace element in this story. But we have to differentiate between sort of being pro-peace and being pro-comprehensive peace. So Sadat wants peace, and it, it seems like he wants it at, at any cost. Um, but for him, the important thing is it's two, two things. A, 
get the Sinai back. This is an Egyptian nationalist perspective. He wants Egyptian territory back so he can finish the conflict, cut down on war expenditure, get the oil revenue back, get the Suez Canal back, you know, get everything in, in order uh, in Egypt. The other thing he wants is to shift an alliance from the Soviet Union to the United States. Uh, and the way to do that is to get uh, a peace with Israel um, and then, you know, move into the U.S. fold. Now, that major, it's kind of ironic, but that major sort of interest in getting peace at any cost means that he becomes a very bad bargainer. Um, he becomes willing to make all sorts of compromises, including basically abandoning the collective Arab stance on the conflict with Israel uh, in order to secure that peace. Um, so he has what we in you know uh, mediation studies call uh, low leverage. He has very little to like. He has very little credibility uh, after a while to push for things because Begin, the Israeli prime minister, sees right through him, knows that there's nothing. So what's Sadat going to do? And the, Carter also, after a while, sees that Sadat is so willing to compromise that when push comes to shove, Carter can always ask Sadat. Uh, to give more he can always say you know just a little bit more for peace come on you're my good friend kind of thing and Sadat almost always gives in Begin is a completely different uh, diplomatic creature um, Begin okay so so Begin the Israeli prime minister he's not in power when Carter comes to power so this is an important part of the story when when Carter comes to power the Israeli government is run by labor but labor is in a weak position in 1977 and there is you know the most minor um today we wouldn't even call it corruption scandal but in in the the, the technical sort of laws of israel at the time it becomes a, a corruption scandal and the labor prime minister has to step down uh, and uh, the election in 1977 brings to power likud for the very first time uh, under the leadership of menachem begin and Menachem Begin's understanding is that the West Bank, Gaza, but especially the West Bank, and Jerusalem are eternal Jewish territories. They cannot be given away at any cost. So Begin's position is, I don't want the Palestinians included in any way. I am not going to concede on the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza. Um, but the Sinai is doable. I can give away territory or give back territory on the Sinai for peace with Egypt. And he has a very sort of strategic understanding that if Egypt is out of the conflict, then uh, Israel is kind of safe because it's hard to see Syria alone engaging in war. Uh, and if we take Egypt out, then we're in a much better position. So he's a super hard bargainer. Anything that Carter or Sadat or... Uh, anybody insists on having more for the Palestinians, he will fight it tooth and nail. And we see time and time again, again throughout the negotiation process that Begin is basically willing to throw the peace away if there is too much Palestinian stuff in there. So anything on Jerusalem, uh, anything on actual Palestinian sovereignty, uh, anything on the refugees, um, he will then say, you know, I don't care. We don't need this peace treaty. So this gives him tons of leverage. When it comes to the other parties, um, the Syrians, uh, 
they go from, you know, they're pretty hardline. They go from being constructive towards Carter. But once Begin comes to power, uh, once Sadat moves towards making too many concessions, uh, Syria goes back to a hardline position, making things more and more difficult, making sort of Arab unity more and more difficult. Um, Jordan is what we talk about as sort of the weak link in the Arab chain. So there, Jordan is willing to compromise more or less um, the same as Sadat, but Jordan is too weak to compromise on its own. So as long as Syria is intransigent and as long as the PLO have a hard uh, hardline position, Jordan has no way to move. So Jordan is kind of stuck um, siding with Syria kind of against its own will. Um, and then you have the PLO. And for me, this is kind of one of the most interesting parts of, of the story I'm telling. And the story of the PLO here is, is, is really complex. But basically, when the PLO is established, the position of the PLO is we're not going to divide Palestine at all. We want the entire area and we want a one democratic state in the entire area. Um, and then they gradually develop. And in 1974, they come with a proposal basically saying we can somehow divide the territory, uh, but they, they pack that away in very radical language, saying you know something along the lines of we can take part of Palestine as a base for the liberation of the entirety. In 1977, they expand on that, um, and they say we can establish a state in parts of Palestine um, and use that as like a, a base. Um, and depending on how you see it, uh, that could either mean that that's a radical way of packing in uh, basically what means we accept a two-state solution. Carter wants to talk to the PLO. There is, in my mind, absolutely no doubt about that, but he cannot. And the reason he cannot is because a document Kissinger made, which is a, a side letter to the Sinai II agreement. And in this side letter, he promises Israel that the US will not talk with the PLO unless the PLO recognize resolution 242 uh, and recognize Israel. The PLO position is we cannot do that because Resolution 242 does not accept us as a legitimate party. They don't uh, recognize that Palestine is a state. Um, so how could we recognize a resolution that so clearly discards us? And what I find really, really interesting is that Carter is much closer talking to the PLO than we've previously thought. And I think this is one of the major findings in my book is that they're actually they reach the level of negotiating almost grammar right so the plo make a statement that says i'm not quoting directly here but they they more or less say had resolution 242 recognized our rights we would have recognized it so it's basically saying resolution 242 we need a new version of it but we're willing to talk about that and Carter says, you know, that's not enough for me. I've promised Israel that I cannot talk to you unless you recognize 242. But here is an alternative formulation. And the US provides the PLO and they're not talking. So they're talking via like third parties. But he basically provides the PLO with a formula saying, we recognize 242, but we wanted to include a, an additional clause saying that we are recognized, right? So it's 
grammar in the sense that it's like it's just turning the same formulation the other way around but it's substantial in the sense that it's uh, we first recognize it and then it gets amended versus we need it amended first and then we will recognize it and for the US that's that's not enough and they keep going back and forth about this and by the time it looks like the PLO might be ready to move far enough Sadat has gone to Jerusalem and we can do a full segment about that, but that's like that's what makes it fall apart, basically. Just take that and go. Yeah. Just sort of go with that story. I think it's. Um, I I remember being at a conference last September and working on something completely different. I'm an economist by training, and sort of an old Israeli economist, um, an Israeli-American economist, but he was from Israel, um, sits down sort of and is, is just talking to us about other things. And he's like, I, I thought this was, I had no idea this was going to happen. And I thought it was one of like sort of the most brave things that had happened that I'd ever seen a politician do. Um, I wasn't entirely sure why it was happening and I had no idea where it was going to go, but sort of, can you just walk us through sort of like what this meant, sort of what it must have felt like and sort of how it all at the end kind of, well, well, probably feeling huge, ended up not doing what it, what it could have done. Sadat reaches this point where he's been, the negotiations have been going on basically since Carter takes office and they're just you know everybody's working overtime Carter Brzezinski Vance um, Sadat himself there's just tons of meetings with Carter and Assad Carter and Sadat Carter and Begin Carter and Rabin um, there's all this back and forth with the PLO you you have this uh, US Soviet document I mean, it's just everybody's working overtime. And then Sadat just reaches this level where he's like, you know, this is not working. I'm sick and tired of it. I want peace now. And he tells he tells Carter, and Carter just doesn't believe him. Uh, Car- he says, you know, I'm going to do something courageous. Uh, Carter actually asks him to do something courageous, but Carter doesn't really understand how courageous Sadat is going to go. Um, and, and Sadat says, you know, that's a good idea. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do something uh, that's going to really force peace to happen. And he holds this speech in the Egyptian parliament. It's known as the ends of the earth speech because he says, I'm willing to do anything for peace. I'm willing to go to the ends of the earth. I'm even willing to go to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And Arafat is in, in, the, in the parliament at the time and people start clapping, but they're clapping not because they believe him, but because they think it's like the signal of like, now Israel needs to give us something because like we really want peace. So it's, it's like a rhetoric thing. But Sadat means it. And, and Begin says, you know, you're invited. You're, you're free to come. And Sadat says, I'll come. And the Americans are completely shocked. They're like, this, this can't be serious. This, is, this must be some sort of joke um, because what are you hoping to obtain? And Sadat's position is, you know, this is the psychological shock that's needed to kickstart a peace process. And once I've done that, the Israelis will make concessions. That's it. Like, I will have bridged the gap. I will have thrown all my cards on the table. And this is how peace is made. Um, So he goes to Jerusalem. uh, He holds a speech in the Knesset. Um, The Arab world is in shock. The Israelis are kind of in shock. The Americans are definitely in shock. 
And Sadat is so convinced that he's really solved the entire issue. So he tells the Americans, you know, back off. I don't need your help. Um, now peace will happen. And but Begin is just <laughs> Begin is just Begin. Begin is. I've studied a lot of diplomatic processes, and and Begin is just perhaps the most cynical mediator I've ever or negotiator I've ever seen. He basically takes this and he says, "Thank you so much." Um, everybody knows now that you're willing to recognize us. De facto, you have recognized us. Um, and you did that without asking for any concessions from us. So why should we give you anything? Like the way things happen is we negotiate for one thing for another thing, but, but you gave us this, this for free. So now negotiations start with you have recognized us. Okay, that has happened. It's what we call pocketing one's gains and then moving on. Um, so it doesn't work. That's not what, this doesn't bring peace. Um, and Begin just becomes hardline again, uh, basically saying, uh, thank you, but uh, now we need to start negotiating again. And Sadat is super frustrated. And he, he basically says to the Americans, you need to come, come back in. To a certain extent, this this cr does create a divide in Israel because you get a lot of Israelis who are just euphoric by this moment. Like our biggest enemy has recognized us. You know, now we must make concessions so that we can like uh, haul in this peace. Um, but that's not the way Begin thinks. He he thinks like, okay, we we got something great, um, but why should we give any anything back for that? You know, the giving back is is part of a negotiation process. It's not like we got something for free. Now we give something for free. Uh, Begin doesn't work like that. Um, but all the other Arab parties to, to the negotiations, they basically uh, give up on Sadat after that. They don't want anything to do with this type of peace process. And once the Americans are back in, um, it's basically a bilateral uh, peace process. It is Egypt and Israel. Um, and there's lots of hard negotiations that happen after that. Um, you know, Camp David being the most famous, but not the only real hard uh, period of negotiations. But then it's only Egypt and, and Israel uh, with the U.S. As, as a third party. So the Palestinians are out, the Soviet Union is out, Syria is out, and Jordan is out. And then can you just take the story one step further and make explicit, because this gets to the thesis of the book about sort of why it is that after Sadat has made this move and now it's just an Arab, or sorry, not an Arab Israeli, it is just an Egyptian Israeli sort of negotiating um, party with the United States as the mediator, why this, this strategy does ultimately succeed and why there ultimately is an Egyptian Israeli sort of peace settlement. So once Sadat has made this move, it's still a bit unclear how important sort of the Palestinian issue to him is. He kind of goes a bit back and forth. Sometimes he will insist, I need something for the Palestinians. And sometimes he will tell the Americans bluntly, I don't care about the Palestinians. They don't matter to me at all. I want the Sinai, that's it. Um, but there's still this like, including them as, as, a, as a topic, but not as a party to the conflict. But Sadat has basically decided, uh, I want peace with Israel. I want to be a U.S. ally. I want the Sinai back. And those are my priorities. Everything else is just so far down my, uh, my line of priorities. Israel's position is we want peace with uh, Egypt, but not at any cost. So if we have to give up anything in the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, 
Palestinian refugees, sovereignty to the Palestinians, then we don't care for peace. Carter, who's like the third, the third party to this, by this time, he has spent so much time and energy on this peace process. So for him, just the, the stakes of getting something out of all of this is just enormous. And the first year of Carter, uh, he's just putting in just tons of work um, about you know all, all sorts of issues. But by the second and third year of, of Carter's presidency, a lot of things start falling apart. Um, everything from like um, what clearly becomes a, a revolution in Iran um, to to other you know a variety of, of, of political factors, which basically means Carter needs he desperately needs one big success, um, and that becomes this Egyptian-Israeli peace process. Um, so with all of this, you know, the Sadat insistence on peace, an Israeli willingness for peace, though not at any cost, uh, and Carter's insistence that we, we have to get something. All of this work cannot be for naught. Uh, and the fact that the whole process becomes so much less complicated once Syria, Jordan, and, and the Palestinians are out basically means that there is there's just such a huge push to get something. Um, but it's a really difficult process nonetheless. And we should never really underestimate how difficult it is to get there. I mean, I spend a lot of time in, in my book kind of criticizing various choices Carter made and highlighting the fact that if we if we measure it against his actual ambition, it's a failure. But I think the Camp David summit, in terms of diplomatic hand, uh, craftsmanship, is one of the most impressive two weeks of diplomacy ever. Um, I guess not ever, that's an overstatement, but in terms of this conflict, I, I can think of few, cl- even, you know, closely comparable... Um, pieces of 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 diplomatic uh craftsmanship it's just really impressive because you know we have to remember that israel and egypt they've been at war a lot of times 1948 1956 1967 1973 um the war of attrition uh which was not you know an official war in the same sense but lasted a long time there's just a lot of big issues, a lot of, of bad blood, um, a lot of things that have happened. Um, Begin being so hard line, um, so difficult to negotiate with. It's just really impressive, uh, regardless of all the criticism one has about, you know, the Palestinians being excluded and all of that. It, it, was, it was really hard work. Uh, we, I think, we cannot but uh, give Carter credit for, for having um, managed to get it uh, in order. Um, and this gets to the book's central argument, which is that Israel, or Israel in its negotiating um, sort of capacity through its prime minister, Begum, was not really willing to concede anything with the exception of the Sinai, um, and that their intransigence was rewarded because everyone else desperately wanted peace. 
I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. You've said it several times. If you read the book, which I highly recommend everyone do, sort of Hafez al-Assad comes across better than Begum by a good, like an order of magnitude. And I never thought I would say those words. Um, like it, it really is is striking how little the Israeli delegation was willing to give for peace. Um, and you spend a little time imagining sort of ways in which the situation could have been handled. Um, you mentioned several times that had Sadat been a little bit more patient and not tried to walk away, Carter might finally have applied some American pressure on Israel. Um, and I, I would just like you to sort of take a few minutes and sort of maybe think out loud about this, sort of A, um, maybe tell our audience a little bit about the domestic situation that really does stay Carter's hand from sanctioning or doing anything about American aid um, with with Israel. And second, maybe tell us if you think, which you don't really speculate about much in the book, that had Carter applied pressure on Israel, would this have worked? Because Begum's hardline stance almost gives you the impression that this this man isn't bluffing, sort of he's from a far-right party, a far-right party that, by the way, this discourse sort of since the turn from labor Zionism in Israel sort of became the narrative that I received sort of about, about the Israeli state. Um, and really, he does seem to see this as not, not a negotiable issue. Um, and so I'm, I'm just curious, sort of, had had Carter really somehow been willing to put up with the domestic cost in the United States to really fight him, be like, you, you have to do something about, about this issue. You have to actually make some concessions. Would it have worked or would it have been sort of the, the closest example I could think of was sort of the Ian Smith regime in Rhodesia that basically spent 10 years letting everyone hate them because they were not willing to make these concessions to multi-party or sort of multi-racial, multi-group democracy. Um, so yeah, just take that where you want, but I'm, I'm really interested in it. Yeah, so I just want to start with, with one important thing, which is that I completely agree that Begin comes across as so hard line that in terms of like the actual discussions about things, Assad comes across as, as you know, softer than, than, than Begin. Two caveats though. One is that we're talking about foreign policy here and not domestic policy. If we talk about domestic policy, Begin is just a much nicer guy than, than Sadat, no, than, than, than Assad. Um, but when it comes to, to like how they approach diplomacy with the US, I completely agree. But the other caveat is that we have to remember that Begin does give away the Sinai, which is, it is a, a big thing to give away. Um, but we have to remember that basically U.S. taxpayers pay for that. It's basically the U.S. that says, you know, once you pull out, we will guarantee that you will get oil from other sources. Uh, we will pay for the dismantlement of the bases uh, and we will just give you tons of aid. So it's not going to come at an economic cost for you. Um, so don't worry about that. So, so that's just uh, important to remember because a lot of people will say, but he gave away the Sinai. That is a huge concession. And yes, it is. But it's, it's in a large extent U.S. paying for that. And apart from the oil, what's important about the Sinai is that it's just a huge geographical buffer making sure that it's hard for Egypt to invade. But once you have peace with Egypt, you don't need that buffer. The peace is the buffer, basically. Um when it comes to how Carter, if Carter could have pressured Israel and how it would have worked if he did, let me start with one thing. So when Begin comes to power, the whole US uh, 
you know, political leadership is in shock. Likud has always been this outlier. Um, you know, uh, Ben Gurion would always talk about them as as fascists. Um, it was just considered inconceivable. Uh, and when Likud won, it was considered the biggest earthquake in in Israeli history. Um, but one of the advices Carter got before the first meeting with Begin was um, use sugar, not vinegar. In other words, try to talk nice. Don't start by criticizing because he will just go, you know, all spikes out. Um, that might have sounded like good advice, but Begin basically just ate that up. He saw Carter's sugar as a proof that Carter was weak. And when Begin returned to Israel, he described Carter as a cream puff, basically meaning I can squeeze him as much as I want. I can walk over him in the Israeli-US relationship. Carter is weak. I am the strong party. And that basically set the tone. It was clear for Begin that, you know, I can walk over Carter. Uh, I can outmaneuver him. Um, I'm not desperate for peace. So if the peace is good enough, I will take it. If it's not good enough, I will reject it. Um, so that's the starting position Begin had. Um, and just to give an, an inclination of how we can understand um, Israeli uh, power in terms of uh, outmaneuvering Carter, I think the best example is the U.S.-Soviet joint declaration. So the United States and, and the Soviet Union, they make this joint declaration, which is a framework for how to work towards peace. This is in October 77. And Begin and, and Moshe Dayan, they basically completely outmaneuver Carter. They take this document, which they consider asking too much for, for Israel uh, of Israel, and they basically make this huge brouhaha in, in the United States, um, making it uh, this huge public thing about how uh, how Carter is throwing Israel under the bus, um, how this is just terrible, um, and just garners this huge amount of support in in uh, in the U.S. Um, for the Israeli position and and against Carter, and Carter basically backtracks on this on this uh, U.S. Soviet joint declaration. Um, but could Carter have pressured Begin? I think. The way he could have done it is if, first of all, he had to have been in tune with Sadat, and Sadat makes a lot of bad decisions, um, and it's kind of hard to 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 work with Sadat because he's kind of so erratic, and it's kind of hard to read him. Um, but the other thing Carter would have had to do, he was he was there was a lot of speculation about a so-called fireside chat to the American people. Um, and the way he would have had to do that was to have reached a point where it was clear that Israel was the party that was in the way of peace, that Sadat really wanted peace, uh, and to be have been able to outline, you know, this is the problem, and to credibly outline that and tell the American people, uh, and then pressure Israel with support of, of uh, the US um, population on this position. And he was never able to do that. They even drafted sort of a fireside chat about this, but they never they ne never uh, got to use it. Um, and 
this is this is where we kind of reach what we call counterfactual history. We don't know what would have happened if Carter applied pressure. We don't know how Begin would have responded. And yes, there's a lot of stuff indicating that Begin would have been basically saying, okay, then I don't want peace. I don't care. This kind of pressure I'm not going to take. Um, so I'm just going to walk away from the negotiations and we're just going to continue business as usual. Uh, and then he would have outlasted Carter and, you know, Reagan comes in also in this scenario, I guess. Uh, and there would have been no peace between uh, Egypt and, and Israel. The point I'm trying to make in the book is that Carter never tried. And this is this for me is a, a fundamental problem. Once things got too hard, he basically accepted that, okay, then the only thing we can do is to accept the peace Israel wants. Uh, and given his grand ambition, um, this is problematic. Um, so, so even though we don't know how it would have gone, and we could speculate that Begin would have gotten the same results or no peace, um, we can still kind of analytically criticize a president for not having tried because we always talk about you know what are the various tools at a president's disposal and this is one he didn't use um so you know even if we think that things might have ended up the same way we can say you should have tried this method but you didn't so i don't i think it's often dangerous to go into too many counterfactual histories, and I'm not going to ask you for another one. But the reason that I think that that one is so interesting that I put it on my list of questions that I've been wondering about a lot is that it seems to be a continual sort of counterfactual question in the relationship between both the Israelis and the Palestinians, of which the United States, if you can hear by my accent, I am American. I grew up in sort of this discourse in which support for Israel was a core piece of American foreign policy. um, And it didn't that, that, that doesn't usually come with a justification. Um, unlike many other player countries that sort of have core American support for one reason or another, um, right? you might say that we support the Saudis because they give us oil, whether that's a good idea or whether it's true or not. Sort of at least it, that, that, that sort of top line narrative comes with the justification, the sense that core support for Israel, you can um, hear American evangelicals, and this is not even to get into sort of the different ideas that sort of both Zionist, anti-Zionist and everyone else about American Jewish communities have towards Israel, is even American evangelicals will view support for Israel as a moral issue, right? Sort of there is, there, and I, I'm just curious, sort of the ways in which this dynamic has changed, um, clearly the rise to power of Likud um, versus sort of 20 some years of labor Zionism or 30 some years, right? Um, that could connect to the American left in ways that quite frankly, far right Israelis just cannot. Um, and I guess now sort of recently in the last war with Gaza, we had Palestinians Americans on the floor of the United States Congress, which previously we would have had Edward Said just writing articles in academic journals complaining, some of which I highly recommend you check out um, for all for reasons that are not related to this podcast. Everyone, this is just your reason to read Edward Said. But anyways, um, so can you just tell us the ways in which sort of the legacy of this story, the ways in which it has changed, the ways in which it has not changed, and sort of take that and go forward. So I always like to quote, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Moshe Dayan. He says, um, the Americans, they give us weapons, 
money and advice. We take the weapons, we take the money and we ignore the advice. Um, and I think that really highlights sort of the way Israel as a state has become so accustomed to the fact that the U.S. will just give um, and won't pressure. Um, and even if the U.S. dislikes Israeli politics, it doesn't really matter. It has no cost. There are historical examples where the U.S. has actually exerted pressure. I want to highlight a couple of those because it is important because it shows that the U.S. is not powerless when it comes to Israel. So one example is in, in 1949, this is rather unknown for most people, but actually Israel um, goes into Egyptian territory proper. And the U.S. says basically, get out. You know, we, we don't care that much about what's happening in Palestine, but don't invade e Egypt. That's just a non-acceptable red line. Um, so basically, Israel, okay, they just they just pull out of that one. Uh, in 1956, the Sinai War, the U.S. basically says, they, they basically threaten Israel. They say, you know, get out of the Sinai, get out of Gaza. This war was terrible. We don't accept what, you, what you're doing here. Get out. Um, and, and George H.W. Bush in, in 1991, he basically says, you will attend the Madrid Peace Conference and we won't give you money um, unless you attend that conference. Now, once Israel attends the conference, the U.S. starts giving money again, and then Shamir is just as, as intransigent as he was before he, he uh, refused to attend the conference, but at least it's an example of, of it being possible. Um, <clears throat> that being said, uh, and reverting actually to your previous question about what could Carter have done in terms of pressure, in my mind, there are at least two central things Carter could have done. Um, the first is basically saying, okay, we promised not to talk to the PLO until such and such happened. But in this negotiation, you actually promised me this and you broke that promise. Begin does break promises to, to, uh, to Carter. Then Carter could have said, you know, if you're not keeping your promise, I'm not keeping mine. I'm going to talk to the PLO because I've wanted to do that for quite a while. That wouldn't. That's not the same as pressuring Israel. It's basically saying, you know, we have a, We had an agreement here. You broke yours, so I'm going to break mine. Um, and that would have saved us what I call the lost decade. Um, what I mean by the lost decade is is Carter recognizing that we need to talk to the PLO, and then it takes actually 11 years until the U.S. talks to the PLO. Um, had Carter started a dialogue with the PLO doesn't mean that we would have had peace earlier or a peace process earlier, but it does. It would have saved a lot of trouble. Um, it would have meant that there were actual communication channels between the PLO and the US, which, which I think would have, have uh, been, been good regardless of, of what came out of them. The other issue is that in 1977, there weren't that many settlements. By today, we're talking 600,000, maybe 700,000 individuals living in, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, basically meaning that a two-state solution today is, is more or less impossible. But in 1977, there weren't that many. Um, so the U.S. could have done things relating to those settlements, basically saying, we're asking you not to expand those settlements. If you do insist on expanding them, we will subtract the amount of money you spend on settlements from the amount of money we give you. So we're still going to give you money. We're still going to sell you weapons. But if you do build stuff that we say is illegal, we're going to subtract that amount. 
um, which is uh, more or less what, what George H.W. Bush did um, all those years later. Um, we can still see Begin saying, fine, I'm still going to build those settlements because that is the core of my ide- ideology. Um, but it would have come at a cost. Um, but by not doing that, basically settlement expansion became cost-free for Israel. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we see the result of that uh, today. Um, so there's this huge question, you know, what explains this? Uh, and you're mentioning, you know, the American Jewish community, the evangelicals. You know, it goes even much deeper than that. I think in the U.S. there is this uh, kind of perfect storm of elements that basically dictate that one should support Israel. So it's um, what we can think of as like the the just the mere um, uh, like uh, democratic function of in certain states there is a Jewish constituency which vote actively uh, and which can flip from one party to another if uh, if they put Israel as a high priority uh, and the president goes against Israel then that constituency might change party that's a concern but it's it that's not the biggest concern that's often like a conflated concern because there aren't that many states where that is a big issue um large Christian communities, especially in the past decades with the evangelicals, is a much bigger issue. That's a huge chunk of voters uh, in many states, basically saying not only we support Israel, but support for Israel is amongst our top priorities. In other words, if you fulfill nine nine out of our other 10 issues, but not that one, we might still switch party. That's such a big risk that a lot of U.S. politicians are not willing to challenge that. Um, third, there is a lack of Arab balance. And here I'm talking about both sort of Arab American constituencies are unorganized. So they don't have like an equal balance to, to evangelicals and Jewish Americans, etc. in domestic politics. But also in terms of foreign policy. The other Arab states, they would care more about, you know, oil trade, um, getting arms support, um, you know, U.S. uh, being on their side against their enemies, um, all of that. So they're not going to really fight this issue uh, at all, with the exception of the the oil boycott in in 73. Um, Then there is the issue of just this, like, common identity, which goes back to, like, uh, you know, the frontier state and, and, and this democratic island in, in a sea of autocrats kind of identity that, that the U.S. has with, with Israel. Um, all of that just really plays in. And, and of course, the, the history of the Holocaust and, and, and all of that, you know, the uh, sense of guilt for, for failure to protect the Jewish people in Europe, all of that just plays into this massive narrative. And then, of course, you have the, the Cold War, where Israel is a, is a Cold War ally in Korea, in, in the Middle East, in, in all of these issues. And they're a huge buyer of, of U.S. arms. It's just, it's just all these various elements taken together that basically means, whether through identity, constituencies, lack of balance, strategic interests, all of it just fits into this supporting Israel is good. Whether on, on sort of a, 
a foreign policy balance sheet, that's a good evaluation. That's a different story. Um, as, as is made uh, as, as the case is made in the famous book called the Israel Lobby. Um, if you take all the sort of foreign policy parameters of, of U.S. interest in the region, stability, uh, low oil prices, and, and uh, a good flow of oil, um, reducing terror. If you take those parameters, then supporting Israel sounds like a bad idea, right? Because you, you, there's so many more Arab states. The Arab states have the oil. Um, supporting Israel uh, has created antagonism, which creates has created terror. Uh, you know all of that, and 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 the Arab-Israeli conflict is is uh, creates instability. All of that it's just logical that you know why should you support Israel? But the balance sheet is pointing in the other direction. That supporting Israel is just part and parcel of U.S. policy, um, and challenging that then just becomes really really difficult. I, I want to sort of further this 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 discourse. One more question, and then sort of go into the sources questions and finishing the interview because we're we're getting long on time, and I really appreciate you taking the time for this. But I'm I'm interested in whether there is a, a hope for peace in the future, or sort of a way forward from where we are today. Um, and I I don't think we should we should. I'm not asking you to read history backwards because sort of. The, the turn to the right did happen, right? Um, and so the the way in which Israel exists in the world now is not the same way in which it did in 1970. And clearly sort of the pan-Arab movements and sort of Arab solidarity is not the same thing. Um, I don't want to say dead, but I can't think of another word for it, um, right? Uh, there's just, yeah, um, right? Syria did happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm just interested sort of about what the outlook is today. Um, and just so that our audience knows, I am not just pulling a historian and asking them to talk about the present. I have heard you speak on other podcasts about this. You actually do know something about the contemporary situation. So for credibility reasons, I, I'm not out of, out, of, out of line here. I remember many years ago, the Israeli historian Avi Shlaim visited here at Prio, and, and he was asked more or less that question. And his answer, which I think was spot on then, was that we're not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, rather we're seeing the tunnel at the end of the light. Um, and I think we're deep into the tunnel now. Um, I'm, not seeing, I'm not seeing any chance for peace anytime soon. Um, you know, the, there, is, there is a portion of, of both, you know, intellectuals, human rights organizations, Palestinian activists, Israeli activists, American activists, we're now basically saying, you know, the only viable way forward now is a one-state solution because we've moved into what we can call apartheid territory. We've moved into the one non-democratic state situation. Peter Byernart, uh, the U.S. Uh, intellectual, he famously said, you know, uh, there is no w- way around it. We're in a one-state situation. The choice now is not between one state or two states. It's between democratic one state or non-democratic one state and currently we're looking at non-democratic one state and that is a serious problem um i think the 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 period we are in now is this weird period of of solution flux if you will so the paradigm has been two-state solution um we're nowhere near uh, realizing that one state solution is actual solution because the Israelis don't want it, the Palestinian leadership don't want it, there's no international 
pressure for that. The international community, you know, the, the, the countries that have been leading the peace process, whether it's, you know, Norway, the United States, the EU, they're all sort of locked in on the two-state solution. But reality on the ground is that the two-state solution is dead. You know, the 600,000 settlers, they can't be moved anytime soon at all. Uh, even if one thinks of sort of radical land for peace kind of exchange where the settlements stay and then the Palestinians get other land in, in return, the West Bank is just so fractured up. It's just really difficult to see that work. Um, not to talk about, you know, how to, to divide Jerusalem now that the U.S., even though Biden has semi-backtracked on that, he hasn't really. This recognition that all of Jerusalem is Israeli, you know, what's the Israeli impetus to then divide Jerusalem? It's there's just no external pressure on on Israel to make any of the difficult things to kind of revert to a two-state solution being possible. Um, so we're stuck in this really difficult situation where a lot of people, uh, including Palestinians and Israelis, have realized that two-state solution is not possible, but very few people have reach the conclusion that, okay, let's aim for a one-state solution, or let's aim for an alternative. Um, now, there are other, like, middle ground areas here, like um, uh, a federal solution, where it's, like, two semi-independent territories within one territorial um, uh, umbrella, or one-state structure umbrella. But that's not really on the agenda of, of anybody. That's not saying that we can never reach there, but currently we're just not there. Um, so we're just in a, in a really difficult situation where, where um, there's lack of a solution on the horizon. Um, and what we see, if we look at Israel and the US, what we see is basically a, a development towards managing rather than solving the conflict. Uh, and what that means is that every time there's escalation in Gaza, diplomacy works towards de-escalating it. And diplomacy is always geared towards hindering an escalation in Gaza. It's not aimed at solving Gaza. There is almost no talk about stopping the blockade. There's almost there's really no diplomatic talk about dismantling settlements, not, not even really stopping settlements. Um, so it's just about, you know, maintaining less active conflict, but not solving conflict. And that's, I think, a really sad state of affairs. Okay, well, with that unhappy note, I would like to ask you what types of sources you drew upon, sort of what types of language skills you employed, um, and just a speculation about how your work might have been different if you consulted different archives in different places. Um, there's not a ton in this in the book because the book does read like a narrative, which is really nice. It doesn't have, but the it doesn't have sort of like the these are the archives. This is sort of how I selected my sources. Um, but just if you want to take like a minute or two and sort of give us the sources, give us the source criticism, explain your decision with practical or theoretical or any other mix of, of, of reason. So, you know, this book is U.S. centric. There is no getting away from that. I am focusing on U.S. diplomacy, U.S. thinking, uh, U.S. engagement with the region. Um, now... I think there's one practical or realistic way I could have altered that, and that is Israeli sources. Um, I don't I don't read Hebrew, and um, 
there is also uh, we don't know how much of I don't know at least how much of those archives are actually available. Thankfully, uh, there have been published quite a bit of translated um, primary sources from Israel, both interviews and and primary written sources, and I have utilized all of those. So I have you know as much as possible integrated the Israeli sort of internal thinking. But I, I do acknowledge that there's much more that I, that's out there in the archives. Um, what's lacking, which I would have been much more difficult to address, but I would have wanted much more to address because it's less covered in existing literature, is internal, especially PLO and Egyptian deliberations in, in terms of you know, I'd really want to look at how the PLO w- were thinking about this this conversation with Carter, indirect conversation with Carter about this two for two acceptance formulation. I really, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> that would have been just great because I really want to know how close they were. Uh, how much was Arafat willing to do? Did he not uh, do it because he was pressured from within the PLO? Or was he reluctant himself? You know, what's the internal PLO dynamic there? I think that's, you know, really a missing piece of this story, which have been, would have been great to access. Um, awesome. And so this brings us to our last more traditional questions that our listeners to any NBN sort of podcast will know. Um, the first is sort of, what are you reading? Um, do you want to give a book recommendation? Is there something sort of either for work or for pleasure that sort of you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, so so I uh, I was kind of expecting that question to come. So I was thinking thinking a lot about it. You know, I, I read a lot of, of diplomatic history um, and there are tons of great books there. But I was thinking, you know, what's what's a good recent book that I've read that that's really different? And I think the one I want to recommend is, is Black Power in Palestine uh, by Michael Fishbuck which is just amazing because it tells a story of uh, transnational solidarity between, you know, the African-American uh, movement in America um, and the Palestinian uh, liberation organization or the Palestinian various Palestinian liberation movements internationally. Uh, it just tells that story really well and it just really, um, you know, blew my mind in, in a sense in how it, it captures one specific political segment in the U.S. You know, going back to my quest or our discussion previously about like various pressure groups in in the U.S. You know, the African American uh, movement was divided on Palestine because you had uh, one group which was, you know, they, they didn't really want to associate that much with Palestine because uh, they wanted to be part of sort of the normal discourse in the U.S. and so they sided with Israel. Um, whilst the more radical sort of Black Panther movement, etc., they really sided all in with the, the PLO because for them it wasn't about normalizing into U.S. policy. It was about, you know, a third world liberation. And for them, that was the natural ally. Uh, but you see this more sort of uh, reform-oriented African-American movement. They started shifting towards the PLO gradually. Um, which was just a very, really, really fascinating dynamic. And, you know, if I can connect this to, to a, another advertisement for my own research, I, f- I, I did an article on uh, how the PLO worked as a mediator between the US and um, Iran during the hostage crisis. And there the PLO's demand to Iran was release the African-American hostages. Um, and Ayatollah Khomeini did. 
he released uh, the, the so-called Thanksgiving 13, which was African-American hostages and female hostages, um, as long as they were non-CIA affiliated. And that was because of that solidarity between the African-Americans and, and the PLO. Um, so that's just a really, really fascinating story. I'd never heard that story, and it is indeed fascinating. Um, so yeah, everyone go pick up that book as well. Um, and then I guess this is your... Uh, chance for a shameless plug. What are you working on now? Um, I know that you have another new book out. I would have also included that, but it is in Norwegian. And unfortunately, while I am visiting Prio, I do not speak Norwegian or read Norwegian for that matter. Um, but yeah, do you want to tell us what it is that you're working on now? Sort of what your interests are now? So my favorite pet project at the moment is actually uh, an article um, about uh, Robert Kappa, the the war photographer. Um, and his relation to Israel-Palestine, because he was there in 1948, 1949, and 1950, and he took tons of pictures of this formative uh, years of, of, of Israel, um, yet he almost took no pictures of any Palestinians in those three trips. Um, and I'm really interested in this because it, it's just, it connects to this whole story of why is Israel seen as this unique thing that uh, uh, the West has to support? Um, and I'm kind of just trying to analyze this, this blindness towards uh, the Palestinian story. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and doing this interview and putting up with my sort of tech issues and, and everything. I really appreciate it. The book is Arab-Israeli Diplomacy Under Carter, the U.S., Israel, and the Palestinians. Um, and you can pick up a copy. Do you want to shout out a bookstore that is a favorite of yours? Or do you want to just sort of leave it at, you can find it online literally anywhere. I found it in 10 seconds. I don't know which bookstore has it, but if I'm going to give a shout out to, to a bookstore, I'm just going to have to pick my favorite in some of my favorite cities. Alsaki in, in London, the educational bookstore in Jerusalem and Trunsmo here in Oslo. All great bookstores. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And um, yeah, the next time you sort of write a book, I hope you'll come and join us again.